are listening to One Dime Radio. Become a patron at patreon.com slash one dime to support the show and get access to extra content. We think that ideology is something blurring, confusing our straight view. Ideology should be glasses which distort our view. And the critique of ideology should be the opposite, like you take off the glasses so that you can finally see the way things really are. When you talk about a revolution, most people think violence without realizing that the real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for, not in the way you reach them. Philosophers call someone a relative, by which they mean it's a person that holds that any view is as good as any other view. My simple response to that is this. No one holds that view. No one believes that every view is as good as every other view. Welcome to One Dime Radio. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the philosophy of Alain Badiou. Alain Badiou is a thinker who I consider to be very underrated and very important for people who consider themselves to be proponents of a leftist emancipatory politics towards changing society rather than just merely interpreting it. And Alain Badiou is very famous and he's still alive. However, in the English-speaking world, outside of academic circles, I don't see his work being discussed enough. I was lucky enough, though, to be exposed to Alain Badiou in grad school. And the only people I know who are Badiouians, who are very well versed in his work, include one of my mentors in grad school, one of my professors who will be on this show at some point. And other than that, I don't know too many, but I do know this one person who is who runs the t- account on Twitter that is essentially the Alan Badu uh, Twitter account that retweets all of his quotes and stuff like that. And uh, he also runs the account Logics of Worlds, which is his main account. His name's Chris, my guest today, who's very well versed in Badu's works. And uh, what we intend to do today is give a general overview over some of his main core concepts. We'll cover as much as we can. Uh, there's only so much we can cover. So without further ado, Chris, what got you into the works of Ellen Badiou and why should we give a shit? Why is he important? So thank you for having me on. As you mentioned, I'm the most annoying Badiou guy on Twitter. I picked up Badiou around 2008, 2009. I was idea shopping and I came across Slavoj Zizek's violence. And in that book, he makes a lot of references to Badiou. And so that was sort of the next level, in my opinion, to graduate from Zizek to Badiou. And so for anybody who's interested in, as you say, the idea of we want to change our world, we want things to be better for ourselves, we first need to understand what's going on in the world and how the world works. And Badu, I think, gives a very comprehensive and systemic approach to that by understanding things in terms of situations. And as a philosopher, he gives us a very broad systemic apparatus, so to speak, of looking at the world and understanding really what change means in terms of what needs to happen. So in this case, Badiou, as a philosopher, answers three big questions. The question of being, the question of truth, and the question of subject. And as you mentioned, Badiou, now being 86 years old, has lived a very historic life. For those who haven't watched the Badiou film, it's a documentary on his life that was produced a couple years ago. 
I totally recommend that for all the biographical details, but for the purposes of this, we'll focus on the philosophy as such, given that it does sort of intimidate people given Badiou's relationship to mathematics. But in general, for those who actually do take seriously the idea that we can have a society that's free of capitalism, then we should actually take a look at the work of Alain Badiou. Badiou has said that his, the purpose of philosophy is to corrupt the youth. What does he mean by this? And what is his relation to communism? And I think the bigger question is, more more contentious question certainly, is his relation to Marxism. So when Badiou speaks about corrupting the youth, the reference comes from his second manifesto for philosophy. But as a general proposition, the world we live in, the dominant ideology, the, the world order, capitalism, liberal democracy, basically offers us only so many options for our lives. We can go to work, be consumers, we can vote in elections, but at the end of the day, our sort of choices are very restricted. And so for Badiou, we can have ideas about how to change the world, which would be for him the idea of communism. And so rather than submitting to the dominant order and becoming workers and consumers, we corrupt the youth with the idea that things could be different. So rather than just assimilating into the dominant order, we can have ideas about communism, um, which are going to lead us to radical politics, to choices we make that are going to affect our lives in very different ways. So that's the kind of aspect of corrupting the youth that he speaks about. Now, the relationship of Badiou to Marxism, Badiou himself, has been, like I said, he's been around since the May 68 years. So May 68 was sort of his coming of age. I think he was around 30 at the time. But May 68, the politics he figured out then was the idea that beyond the Communist Party's sort of line of keeping the trade union separate from the student movements or whatever, that there were new possibilities at play in May 68 where workers and students could actually form a different type of relationship to one another meaning that you didn't have to restrict people to these sort of categories of working class. This is a really bad tangent. So the thing I really want to suggest about Badiou and Marxism is that Badiou does hold on to these ideas and in four sort of key components or references that one would make. The first one being that the idea we can have a collective life outside of private property. The second one he suggests is that we can have a society where we don't overly specialize workers into these sort of homogenous or yeah, very homogenized rules. So you just reference to the idea of the polymorphous worker. Another sort of reference to Marxism is the idea that we don't capitulate to identitarian politics. We promote internationalism or, and try to reduce divisions between people as much as possible. And that the fourth one would be the idea that communists still have to commit themselves to the withering of the state. And so none of these in themselves give a kind of positive content, meaning what we should do. It's more of a reference as to are we doing these things moving forward uh, that are going to keep us on a sort of a path to Marxism and communism. So that being said, Badu's conception of politics in a large sense tends to go beyond that sort of traditional class struggle, meaning that politics is something that 
happens in certain situations and it doesn't simply always even out into this sort of simple workers against the capitalist class struggle. It certainly includes it, but that politics goes beyond it. Right. He has said that he is a communist before his, more than he is a Marxist. Yes. He says I'm communist more than a Marxist. And he's been labeled by some as a post-Marxist. Some post, I've labeled him post-Maoist because he, of course, has a very important relationship with Maoism and cultural revolution. In what ways does Badiou's approach to politics, his political, well, he, he would reject political philosophy, but his thinking differ from Marxism? Because I know that's a pretty big component of his work. It's certainly not, I wouldn't say his most complicated because we're going to, we're going to get to his more complicated ideas, but because it's like a largely political podcast that has a lot of listeners who might consider themselves Marxist, some might look that up about Baidu and they'll think, they'll be immediately skeptical. They'll think he's one of these post-structuralist academics who rejects Marxism, but explain why, but why Baidu is, what he means by that is, is something quite different. So in order to understand Badu's politics, we have to maybe backtrack just a touch into the, the realm of philosophy. So Badu does consider himself to be a philosopher, which is different than, say, doing politics as such. For Badu, you really do have to ask the sort of grandiose question of what is being as such? In his 1988 work, Being an Event, which has been translated in English along with a lot of his other works, he takes the stance that being is a kind of multiplicity uh, as opposed to what he will refer to as being the one. Now, this goes back to Parmenides, uh, the idea of being and thinking are the same thing. You see this in Spinoza with being God in nature, but then everything forms this sort of totalizing whole. Uh, Badu, on the other hand, sort of takes the radical decision on the opposite spectrum, which is being is nothing but pure and consistent multiplicity. And that what we have are these sort of pockets of consistency that are thinkable for us. He uses the sort of language of zermelo frankel set theory to think what we have as far as being, but that at the end of the day, we also sort of think of being as being synonymous with situations. So how are situations structured for Badu? Well, if things are multiple in set is where we have to get really not so technical, hopefully, but the idea is that you count multiples and, and the idea that multiples are thinkable in terms of situations. So we have inconsistent multiplicity to consistent multiplicity. So we might think of what I used this sort of way of thinking about it a while ago, the sense of a library is a situation where you go into and you find multiples of books on shelves, and then you can sort of classify those multiples in certain ways, meaning that the library has a sort of structure to it. And out of a situation, you have a state of the situation. So again, this is a lot of what his technical jargon amounts to. Um, but that certain situations are different than other situations by virtue of how things are counted, um, whether or not things, uh, to use the terms belonging or included, or whether things are presented or represented. And so this really does lead into the way to understand his politics is that he's always looking for situations where the possibility of an event can take place. The event being his sort of core edition concept. 
Right. So, poly- yeah, I was going to get into that later, but I think if, since we're at it, I think maybe that's we, why not just dive into the most the most famous concept of Lenbeju and that being the event and its relation to being. And perhaps by the end, once we go through those key components of his philosophy, we can perhaps mm-hmm. use the end as a quilting point to sort of quilt that as relationship to his like his philosophy and his politics is i sorry his politics because i think i i would say his politics i can i have no trouble explaining his departure for or not his differences with marxism and the likes of althusser mm-hmm. and his theory of the subject but so why don't we just go straight into the event and this is i mean this is the problem of approaching somebody who has such a large systemic mm-hmm. philosophy is like where do you enter into and how does it circle back on itself so, as I was suggesting, the idea of situations for Badiou amounts to a particular kind of multiplicity. So, in set theory, we talk about this idea of sets, and the basic operator for understanding what a set is, is it's a relationship of belonging. Now, books can be said to belong to a library, pages belong to a book. We can say that I belong to the state of Utah. We can say that people... The idea is it's just general being that it's a collection of multiples or elements in this case. But then at the end of the day, those collections of elements are also collections of elements, which are also multiples, retro multiples of multiples. That's the sort of aspect of being that he is applying to the world. Uh, and that it's this thinkable multiplicity and how these certain types of multiplicities as situations arise and change. So... One of the sort of, this is where it gets into one of the key distinctions between Badiou and Marxism as this rule of the state. So for the traditional Marxist comprehension of the state, it's a special relationship of our men. And uh, basically it's the way that class antagonisms are reconciled in bourgeois society. So the state is there to enforce property. It's there to break up strikes. It's there to arrest and harass people. And so that it really just maintains the sort of status quo so that people could continue to make profits and all the bad sort of side effects that happen through class struggle are squashed. The idea of a situation for Badu or state of the situation for Badu is slightly different in the sense that it wants to prevent uh, excess. And so in set theory, again, this is where it's Unfortunately, we have to go into these concepts and I don't have the ability to like draw them out. So set theory, the idea of excess is that when you have a set of multiples, you have what's called an axiom of the power set. So what the axiom of the power set is, it's the set of all these subsets. So for example, if I have a set of three books, I can sort of arrange them into a subset meaning Plato's Republic, Descartes' Collected Works, and then Hegel's Science of Logic, right? And then I can arrange those into a set of Plato and Descartes, a set of Hegel and Descartes, a set of Plato, and as you can see, right, it's this sort of counting of all the possible combinations that you can put together. But what you notice is that the initial set contains three elements, but once you've counted all the possible subsets, you end up with a larger number of counted objects. And it, it, usually it's two to the n uh, to give that equation. So you end up with, uh, out of three, you end up with a total of, I'm sorry, bad at math right now, eight, nine, right? We're getting into probably the most 
impenetrable aspect of Badu's philosophy, the mathematical component, which is where he loses me usually. Okay, let's try um, to get through it. Warning the audience that we're building to something because I can just imagine there's people listening who are like, I'm too dumb for this, I'm out, but it'll be worth it. Yeah, and one of my sort of recommendations when you try to broach Badu's bigger works, like being an event or Logics of Worlds or his Eminence of Truths, is to give it a go. And if you go to the point where you actually get stuck and you have to sit there and scratch your head and say, what is he really talking about? Because a lot of people sort of stifle themselves and just not wanting to read it or want to do a bunch of preliminary research on that issue. I would just simply say, read by you and figure out where you don't understand him. So when we talk about the state of the situation, it's the point at which you count all the multiples that are present in the situation and you end up with excess, meaning there's different, there's more countable parts to a situation than there are that simply just exist by virtue of the count itself. So the you said there is just really something to think through. So the idea of a situation being having a sort of natural access to it, just by virtue of its recounting by the state, means that there about this. So one of his sort of classic examples in being an event is the idea of an immigrant family. And a part of the family, the members don't have documents. Their son's popular as he sort of famously has his uh, organizational politic campaign. So you have workers without papers or people who are in the country without documentation. The state can only count and account for the people who have documents and can represent them. But there are still people that actually exist, but are what he would say is being present, but not being represented. Or they belong to the situation, but they're not included because they're unrepresented by not having documents. And so you get these situations where you have to decide how do these people actually need to be included in the situation, whereas the current state of affairs is just to simply expel them from the country, send them back to their country of origin because they're quote unquote illegals. Now, does that kind of, how are you doing on that? I'm going to use you as the feedback on how I'm developing these ideas because they're rough. I don't know anything about set theory. So when it when it's comes to the whole component of set theory, it just it's just I find it hard. I have to probably visualize it. Okay. More. Okay. So maybe we can dial it back when it comes to the event in politics, because the the way I understand the event is for Badu, there's four different kinds of events, right? The polit- political events, artistic events, love events, and scientific events. And he separates philosophy very much from politics. The role of the philosophy, correct me if I'm mistaken, is more supposed to extract truths from events. And based on events, there's subjects that there's subjects that are formed in relation to those events. Like there's the reactive subject and the faithful subject and the obscure subject. And that's how they interpret the events. Because I think that might be worth getting into because one, like what is the event and then the subject. I think those are two things probably that are super interrelated and I think have a very direct application to politics. And I think because it's shaped the way I understand, for example, actually existing socialism um, as opposed to maybe we can get into that after. But yeah, why don't we maybe get into that a bit? 
Okay, cool. And yeah, like I said, I'll try to use you as a gauge for where we're at. So, so you're right to point out that what part of Buddy's philosophy is, is that there's what he calls truth conditions. So every philosophy itself doesn't actually produce truths. It rather thinks truths and it thinks the compossibility of truths that emerge in the four conditions that you mentioned, being politics, art, science, and love. And that each of those truths itself has a different kind of subject and subject is very, something very contentious. It's not the sort of traditional subject, uh, which is consistent and always present. The Cartesian subject would be sort of the example where it's always the thinking subject uh, that's reflexively experiencing the world and is constant. Rather, subject is something that emerges from an event uh, and organizes the sort of consequences of an event for a world. And so what really is the events in terms of Badu? It's basically what happens when uh, certain possibilities which are suppressed within a world become possible. It's the flipping of things on its head. So if you imagine in politics, the idea of decisions being made no longer being attributed to how much profit somebody's going to make or what somebody's property rights are going to be protected, um, but that we as political subjects can decide collectively what's best for humanity, not for what some shareholder is going to profit off. But then at the same time, we have to follow through on that idea as subjects. And so there are certain consequences which would take place. So our landlords would probably not benefit very much. Shareholders, bankers, people who own the means of production, everything is going to have to radically change within the situation based on the truth that we are politically equal as human beings. The event he kind of references, if you uh, want to take it in the Lacanian direction, is it's sort of the unconscious of this situation. It's new possibilities that emerge imminent to a situation based on a particular type of situation. Uh, some examples he constantly uses are the French Revolution, uh, the Russian Revolution, obviously, the Chinese Revolution, including the Cultural Revolution. And all of these are sort of radical upheavals that happen within the situation. So it's not something external from, it's not some transcendental idea that falls from the heavens, but it's just the idea that within the situation, there's something that goes unnamed and has to be followed through in terms of its consequences. And so out of this, the idea of a subject, as you mentioned, there are sort of three types that happen. So the first would be the faithful subject, meaning that they do, in a sense, sort of recognize that something different has happened and something needs to be followed up on. And so they work out the consequences of the events. And see that fidelity thing. to the event, right? There That's is a like his... concept of fidelity. So yeah, mm. fidelity would What's be like the, like the actual organizational consequences and the later works, uh, Nimitz and the Truth, he's talking about this in terms of a work, uh, meaning that you actually have to go through the situation multiple by multiple or point by point, as he refers to in Logics of the World, um, which again gets into sort of uh, the idea that the impetus for changing a situation falls on the subject or what, what held for termed as a body in Logics of the World. So the Jacobins are, in a sense, a subject to the French Revolution. Part of the consequences of the French Revolution is that there's no more king. Um, 
and that people are no longer broken up into the aristocracy, they're no longer broken up into peasants, but then everybody becomes a citizen and they address each other as citizens. And there's actual material consequences that happen. The reason I sort of play on this so much is there's a concept or at least an idea that Badu's event is just a miracle. It's sort of something that happens and then things change and then we're in a better position. And I think that's a little misleading. So the idea of a subject coming into play and actually determining the consequences like in the French Revolution or whether it's the Russian Revolution and the Bolsheviks having to work through the consequences of the king, the czar abdicating, going through the, the problems of the period from April to the October Revolution, seizing state power, defending themselves from internal civil war and, and constant invasion. So these are different points at which the Bolsheviks had to actually apply consequences to to remain faithful to the idea that you can organize a society without private property. So part of the other subjects, categories that you get out of logics world. So if we talked about the faithful, we have a reactive subject and we have an obscure subject. So a reactive subject is going to be somebody who just out and out denies that there, there is an event that takes place, that effectively nothing changes in the situation and that any type of change is ultimately a kind of criminal adventurous tendency and that we should really just get back to the way things always work. Whereas an obscure subject is going to sort of see an event as happening on the basis of like what he would say fate for like lovers. Like we were star-crossed lovers. We were meant to be. Uh, there's no real chance encounter, meaning that we don't mm. have to work into it. It's just fate playing itself out. The obscure subject is also the subject of fascism. So he mentions that the only real event is particular to the, the German people, the Nazis, that everything else has to be excluded and that there's something very particular about the German community that trumps everything else. Whereas, again, communist politics is going to reject any kind of identity and particularities in favor of what Badu often refers to as a generic. So the generic meaning we find something that is in common for everybody and that sort of gets into his politics of demanding that things be universal. So he uh, does apply the obscure subject to Stalinism, does he not? Because like sort of the obscure subject tries to create a sort of grand narrative around events to make them, like you said, seem as if they're part of this fate. And it's sort of part of his critique of, Mar of a lot of Orthodox Marxism, that this sort of trajectory of like dialectical materialism, right? The the idea that this was just a phase in the inevitable evolution of communism and, and the sort of stages conception of Marxism that he really seems to take issue with. And instead, I think he posits more like a, a sort of theory that gives agency that at least prioritizes the subject and it's how they deal with the events. And the events are these sort of spontaneous chance occurrences as opposed to a part of this big process is that this is not related to the obscure subject tries to create this simplified grand narrative that sort of rationalizes the event. Yeah. So one of the points he talks about, it's in, you can find this in conditions, for example, is that if you try to make your politics, a politics of fulfilling history and the, the historical role of the proletariat without sort of dealing with 
politics as it occurs in situation, then yeah, there's going to be what he would call a disaster to take place. So one of the sort this is where like my dear sort of parts with the idea of the Stalinist conception of Marxism and favor of Maoism is that for Maoism, there is no inevitable point in which you just declare that politics is done with. So this is one of his critiques of, of Stalinism is that Stalinism sort of closed the, the question. It said politics is finished. We've arrived at state socialism. This is us fulfilling history and that there's no, nothing needs to really change about the situation. We need to just maintain what we have. Whereas for Mao, you get the sense that contradictions are going to be a permanent feature of society. And it's a question of how to understand the nature of the contradictions, whether they're antagonistic, whether they're non-antagonistic, whether it's the primary contradiction or if it's a secondary contradiction. And so that to Badu is what it means to think politics, is how do we as a subject, and again, I want to sort of reference here that the idea of a subject in the political sense is the community as such. We need to think not as individual subjects, you and I just having a conversation, but like what is a subject for politics is going to also be different. What is a subject for art, the subject of science, and then the subject of love. So the subject of love is obviously going to be the couple. It's the two who experience the world. The subject of science is always addressed as such to proofs and what you can demonstrate as far as, in a sense, for Badu, a lot of the times it's mathematics. So, and then the artistic subject is the subject who, you know, creates an actual painting or produces a play, theater, ballet, opera. Um, but the political subject is the community as such, but not any community that's determined by any type of identitarian logic. It's always something generic. It maintains that sort of sense of equality. So for Mao, in the sense of talking about contradictions, how do we correctly handle contradictions when they're not antagonistic, meaning how do we create solutions that apply to everybody without breaking our principles? But at the same time, how do we deal with antagonistic contradictions, which don't lead us into problems of exercising state terror? So yes, there are literal class enemies to deal with. But at the right. same time, the whole point of an event is to sort of renew humanity in a, in a way that we can think what the community is going to be in terms of equality. The point on Mao, I can definitely speak to that because my upcoming video documentaries on the Chinese Cultural Revolution, which is something I've been studying for quite a while, and by Ju's essay, The Communist Revolution, the last, re sorry, the Cultural Revolution, the last revolution that he has in the Communist Hypothesis, is very interesting in his take on that. And one thing about Mao, that's this might be a surprise, like Maoism, different from Stalinism, that, that we're typically taught to believe that Maoism is just Stalinism with extra steps, but it's quite different in that Mao, for one, assumed probable defeat as opposed to the inevitability of socialism. We assume that the most likely outcome that would occur was the restoration of capitalism and the defeat of the revolution. Mm -hmm. And Bajus is inspired by that and that his approach to politics is that we're supposed to fail harder next time or fail better the next time, as opposed to this idea that this is all part of one big process that is inevitable. Uh, because you get really like, for example, Stalin's, the historical and dialectical materialism, probably at its uh, best example of his historicism at play, 
and the way he uses dialectics and his trajectory of history kind of painting out, trying to rationalize these, what are really highly overdetermined events and contingencies as part of this big process. Whereas Mao, he pretty much places the fate of the revolution on the, the capacities of like the revolutionaries, the subjects and the masses, right? And uh, yeah, that that's one thing I, I did want to reiterate because how is Maoism different from Stalinism? Well, I mean, there's obviously many things, but Mao himself, just to Mao himself, right, did not see history as this inevitable process. And he very much, not only in, in that text, I think you were referencing, because there's on contradiction and there's the, on the correct handling of contradictions among the people. And in that, I believe he says something along, along the lines of the, the, question of whether it's socialism or capitalism is superior is yet to be decided or basically like it's not so she's pretty much saying there that socialism isn't inevitable and uh, even though he's obviously that that's his political objective and i guess how does that relate to Baidu's approach to politics and his dv his view of political marxism as opposed to marxism as a science slash theory because he also says, I believe in metapolitic. No, all Marxism, like Marxism that is meaningful, that any Marxism that meaningfully exists is political Marxism. He doesn't really subscribe to the Marxism as a science. Maybe tell us about that a little bit and its relation to the. We'll come back to the subjects and the event because it's all correlated to this, but. Right. Yeah. So, as we discussed, there's a sense in. Marxism, and I call it a vulgar Marxism, that history unfolds, uh, meaning we can tr trace the trajectory of human civilization starting out in primitive communism societies where everything's held in common, and then something happened to where we had kings emerge and feudal property, and that carried with its own sort of mode of production, and then that eventually things became so productive that capitalism emerged, and so we live in a disorder of capitalism now. But that eventually capitalism is also going to produce its own contradictions and that will inevitably give way to socialism and that socialism will inevitably give way to communism and that it's just sort of this historical march of history. Badu is going to not agree with that sense, but that he's just going to reject the idea that there's history as such. This would go back in a large sense to his basic understanding of being that there's nothing to render consistency to a situation like history. There's no hand guiding things or just inevitable outcome that's going to guarantee us at some point in human society communism. And it's arguable that Marx and Engels in the manifesto sort of suggested the same thing. And the very like opening lines, what is what are they saying? They're saying history is the history of class struggle, but it's eventually going to it always leads to the uh, mutual ruination of the contending classes or the revolutionary reconstitution of society. So there is sort of a point where Marx and Engels don't even think that. Now, the debate as to whether it's Marx or Engels had a difference in that as well when it comes to that historicism, because with Engels, you definitely, I would say, see it a lot more like the historicism and anti-during the dialectics of nature, as well as a text called The Force of History. Angles, you really see that kind of historicist thinking that you would later see in Stalin's dialectical and historical materialism. But 
in Marx, it seems there's contradictions. There's all these moments which you know, could preface the critique of the political economy he has at his store. But then also in German ideology, he says that what he's laying out is methods as tools as opposed to doctrine. It's stuff mm -hmm. that is meant to be reconstituted. And Baju and the politics can be thought says Marxism should be reconstituted, or I forget the exact phrase he uses, but it's pretty much like more or less re destroyed and rebuilt to some extent. And uh, yeah, I want like, how does that tie it into his broader philosophy, I guess? Because some people who are not Marxists might be like, well, duh, history isn't inevitable. But it's might seem banal. Mm -hmm. But this is like pretty much the arguably the most important topic or of debate when it comes just comes to the so-called crisis of Marxism, right? That people like Althusser and all these other thinkers are sort of are, are trying to address. And Baju has his spin on it, and that's sort of what I'd say maybe is a lot of his philosophy emerges from. No, the crisis of Marxism. Yeah, so the book you reference a lot is Can Politics Be Thought? And I think one of the kind of things to think about is the actual just empirical end to the Soviet Union, right? It doesn't exist anymore. So, and the same thing with China, we can have obviously the debates about whether China is still pursuing the road to communism and socialism, or if they've completely given way to capitalist relations of production. But in Badu's thinking around the time of can politics be thought, he doesn't see the sort of three key references to Marxism being class struggle, being natural liberation struggles. And I, off the top of my head, I'm forgetting like the third one he mentions. But the idea is that there is no reference to Marxism at this point in the late 80s when he's sort of having this conversation amongst other intellectuals. So the question got several essays where he's again trying to refound the idea, the question of Marxism, what is Marxism actually going to look like in the post-Soviet Chinese world where there aren't these sort of obvious indicators. So for him, it does really just come down to, he always references back to the, the question of private property and how the world and situations are organized around private property. But at the same time that these situations are always inevitably going to lead to conflicts in excess in their own right, and that the state is always going to try to intervene and prevent excess from having what we should refer to here as the event. Again, keeping in mind that the event is something that has to be decided upon. It is mm. absolutely related yeah. to the idea of truth. So one of the things that Badu discusses with the events, he gives it sort of these four conditions upon which uh, we should think of it. He says that it's an undecidable thing, that it's related to the generic, that it's also indiscernible, and that it's also unnameable. And part of this gets into, say, his ethics. So we can sort of maybe tangent it that way. But for the event to happen, it requires a very particular type of situation where, as I was sort of indicating, that something exists within the situation that isn't represented within the state of the situation. And so we have to decide how it's going to exist. And that's the language of being an event in Logics of Worlds, um, which is his book, which is more of a what we would refer to as phenomenology as opposed to a strict ontology, is how do you 
truth and change and these kind of things up here within a world. But it all really does come down to this idea of becoming a subject. And I say becoming a subject because there is no, like I was indicating earlier, there's no consistency to being a subject as such. It's like in the Lacanian sense, the subject is very intermittent. It only appears under analytic conditions within the clinic when transference is engaged, but that the subject is the unconscious as such. It's never consistent empirical subject that just use sense data of the world. Subjects emerge out of events and are inherently tied to the thinking of truth of the what the event proposes. So in this case, what does all this really have to do with Marxism? Again, I think it, like I said, was kind of indicating, it goes really back to the question of, can we organize our societies on the basis of something other than private property? The kind of work we do, is it going to be something that is more conducive to breaking down the intellectual divide between the, the actual manual laborers and the intellectual laborers? Is it going to reject ideologics of particular subsets of identities? Uh, is it going to eventually wither away the state and get rid of militaries, polices, uh, the whole field of representational politics that we live under today under liberal democracy? So that's sort of, again, the four key elements that Badu makes reference to when dealing with Marxism. Right. Scaling back to the event, because I think that is a very interesting way of thinking about the way things happen, because we're used to, typically, most people are used to thinking of events as just that things that happen, things that occur. And we keep up with the news to keep up with events. But for Badu, right, a capital E event is a very rare. And mm -hmm. I think it it is worth some people might be asking already, what exactly defines an event as such? And I, you've already addressed the question. It's just what I mean is more specific criteria, because you, you mentioned that it essentially disrupts, it, it can't be signified in the dominant discourses, the symbolic order, I guess we could say perhaps, or does he not use the term logics of worlds, right? It disrupts the very ways we, it can't be named, it can't be uh, understood easily. So like real events by their very nature are unpredictable and difficult to understand and contestable. Um, the way I think about it, because I'm a, just to give you an idea, so my sort of background is more of a Baudrillardian, but I'm more versed in Baudrillard as opposed to Baju. And for Baju, for Baudrillard, this idea of radical alterity is sort of the antithesis to simulation. A radical alter alterity is sort of what cannot be simulated. It sort of disrupts and it re it sort of disrupts the ways in which things that happen, which reality is codified and made irreversible. It, it actually it reverses that. So events, how would we be able to tell like what an event is and what is the process of that? And what is the process of extracting truths from events? Mm -hmm. And maybe what are some, because you, you mentioned French Revolution as an event. In recent years, I, I've thought COVID is an event because COVID-19 seems to this day very unclear as to what really went on. And not in terms of like conspiracy, like vaccine, whatever. I mean, just more, what is it? The way the reactions of that, the way people reacted to that and were affected by, I think it still remains to be understood. 
I feel it's an event, but it might not be according to Badu's logic. I'm just a bit curious on that end because some people who are listening might be thinking, yeah, what is, how do we tell? How do we, could what's happening in Israel and Palestine right now be an event, right? So a lot I threw at you there, but. Yeah, that's fine. So one of the things, and maybe this is actually, I could tie this back into the Marx question is in capitalism, there's this problem of crises. We saw the, the meltdown of capitalism in the 2008-2009 era with the financial crisis. And for something that we could maybe think of that it's as speculatively as an event. That just has with COVID, just was with the thing. But the question is, is there something new within the situation? Because arguably, in some sense, capitalism rebounded from COVID. Um, I'll give you just as an example, like my industry, which is entertainment, live events, I'm a you know, stagehand. I work in theater. That was shut down for the entire summer. But at this point, things are back to the way they were. And so these periods of crisis and the sense of things happening according to the situations that we find themselves in are just features of the system itself. Nothing new emerges or fundamentally changes the situation as such. It reconstitutes itself in terms of its own laws of the world as such, or, or its own world order. Nothing changed the property question about COVID. Uh, Badu addresses COVID. Uh, it, there's an essay published in the book he just put out this year called A New Dawn for Politics. But yeah, he just indicates that there's nothing really new about situations in terms of a crisis when it's just the sort of fundamental repetition as such of how a situation exists on its own. An event, on the other hand, is something that radically disrupts the actual logics of a world, what he would call the laws of appearing, when something which was formerly inexistent becomes existent, to use that language, but at the same time, uh, when it, something in a situation which was formerly unnamed becomes named. Again, lots of really jargon-heavy language to sort through. We can sort of talk about events in the more recent situation where Egypt is one of his references. So if you've read the book, Rebirth of History, I think it's a really good introduction to the politics in general about you. But the idea uh, that the taking of Tahir Square, the forcing of Mubarak out, was something historic and actually led to some addressing of a popular demand. And this is where Baidu sort of gets into this critique of what he would call movementism. So with the Israel-Palestine situation, there is a lot of movementism involved, especially in the United States, around a ceasefire. And right now, that is the correct demand. There should be a ceasefire. Israel should stop murdering and committing genocide. And people are taking steps to rally around that demand, the, the giant march in Washington that happened the other day. The people who are attaching themselves to the ships, which are being forced to redock because they can't go overseas with civilians attached to them, which were inevitably carrying weapons to murder people in Gaza. And then also the people who are protesting at different sites in America, the Adlib weapons manufacturer. So people are coalescing around this central demand, just like they did with Mubarak out now. But the question is, what happens after the demand is met? What happens after Mubarak is out? And this is where Badu sort of suggests that politics really has to follow through um, with ideas. That's where you think politics is, 
No, because he I'm says sorry? politics isn't that not what he thinks politics literally is. Like politics is thought. It involves. It, it's not. There is no politics without prescriptions, because he's he takes that view right that politics is rare and sequential. Yes, it's ephemeral. It's not this what we call elections or everyday power struggles. He wouldn't consider that politics. And yeah, of course, he takes his adopts his view from Sylvain Lazarus, this thing, the French thinker who most of his work's not even in English, but he takes that view from him. That that's the kind of first writings of a Jew actually got exposed to was metapolitics and politics. We thought I actually have them right here. I would say the first two chapters are readable and after it's quite difficult, but this one's not too bad. Yeah. So w- with regards to politics, you're saying uh, with the problem with movementism, right? And making protesting, but we're not having a demand for what comes after. Would it be safe to say that it's not politics, according to Badu's framework, if it does not have a sort of prescription there? I mean, like he, he does actually make the explicit claim. Because it recently came out this year was his 13 theses on politics, uh, which was published on Verso and a, a few other formats. Oh, is that a new dawn for politics? or uh, It's not within that. It was actually it's a I different book. The first place I read it is in a, one of his smaller titles called I Know There Are So Many of You. But Verso recently published it as 13 theses on politics. And he's critiquing this idea of movetism that, that it's there's just no politics to back it up. So, yeah. like I said, you're issuing a negative demand on the situation to cease fire, Mubarak out now, the French riots that happened earlier this year, where people were rejecting the idea that they should extend the retirement age. So there's all these situations where there's movement, there's activity, but it's coalescing around a negative demand. There's nothing that's affirmed new in the situation. And that's the issue for the event is that it has to actually affirm something new and that the ideas of political equality and emancipatory politics have to have some level of consequences for a situation. So again, going back to the idea of the French Revolution, what is the real consequence of declaring that there's a republic? It's the end of feudal monarchy which means it's the end of the king, which means at some point the king has to go. So those are the type of consequences that the Jacobins enforced within the situation. And you can think of other examples. Once Mubarak leaves Egypt in Tahir Square, what is what fills the vacuum, right? What takes over in place of that? So these issues that Badu is trying to think through is what happens when you get your demands, but that the situation doesn't fundamentally radically change. It just repeats under new, uh, a new order in a sense. That would, sort of would, he, would that be saturation, which is a term he's used before. It's a Lazarus term from Lazarus that when politics, because he thinks of politics, right, as rare and ephemeral sequences right. uh, that have beginning and end points. Politics as opposed to just everyday affairs, power struggles, whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. It starts, and, and he thinks of them as sequences. So at the when there's like a radical, for example, a radical like a revolution, like a Russian revolution, mm-hmm. and Bolsheviks take power and whatnot. 
at some point, we'll see the political sequence ends, uh, reaches a point of saturation or exhaustion. It, it basically dies out. Mm-hmm. And he, he seems to apply that same logic to relationships in the uh, his book in Praise of Love about uh, love events and stuff. And because uh, this is where I, I need a little confirmation is because I, I know Lazarus thinks that the Russian Revolution, who Lazarus is inspired by Jews thinking on politics in this regard, thinks that the Russian Revolution basically reached a point of saturation already in the, the mid-20s. You could say, like, what, partially because kind of turning all of what politics was to basically what the state did was now what politics was, as opposed to what the the demands of people and whatnot. Yeah, I don't know how that, if that's, but do has like a difference in that, or if it's just exactly like Lazarus's framework, because... It's a good question. It's been a minute since I revisited uh, the book you're referring to, Anthropology of the Name. So to say that a sequence of politics becomes saturated means that the sort of naming and the use of names within that context carry with it so much weight that there's really no room for thinking something new. But uh, yeah, no, like my question more is in a practical sense. So with Alain Badiou's conception of politics, because he's critiquing movementism and if politics are is rare, how do we know when politics isn't happening when it saturates? Okay. Or even yeah. when it's occurring. But I, I think would... when it's occurring seems more obvious because it's an event, right? For it to be politics as such, an event has to occur. Right. Well, so not, it... not for it to be politics as such because it starts as thought. But for politics to, I guess, take place, there is an event. How right. does that end? How do we know when politics has stopped? So let's maybe like bring into this that you mentioned love as a sort of other one of the other truth conditions. And it's sort of like, how do you know you're in love with somebody, which is different than, say, pursuing a, a family life and getting married and having kids and buying a house and sort of reproducing the family and doing your part for society to raise the next generation versus, say, just course, sexuality, pleasure, online dating, hookup culture, and these kinds of things. What's the sort of midway point where you know you're in love with somebody? Something about the world is just different when you're around that person, that they're the person you want to experience the world with. And when does that end in a certain sense? Those are the kind of, I think, similarities we can think about with love, because love for Badu, as he sort of indicates in this book, In Praise of Love, love is that minimal form of communism when you're with one other person, when there's two as opposed to, say, uh, in politics when it's a community. So the question, of course, when does politics end? I feel like if, when the sequence ends, that there's nothing new that, you know, in the sense of when did the, the Russian Revolution really end? Is it the end of the Civil War? Is it the end of Stalin? Is it the actual end of Soviet life as such? When did the Cultural Revolution end? These are good questions to ask, and how would Badu think about them? It would be in terms of when the truth procedure itself uh, can no longer account for something new. So the idea of truth procedure comes out of logics of worlds, not logics of worlds, sorry, being an event. This is what happens when an event occurs. Like I said, with love, it's the, yes, this is the person I want to be with, but then you sort of go through the situation of, are we going to live together? Are we going to have kids together? And in these sort of yes or no points of contention that you have to deal with. And so same thing with like, say the Russian revolution, are we going to fight a civil war together? Are we going to 
participate in World War II? Are we going to, the stake of the community as such, are we going to collectivize agriculture? Are we going to rethink what art is for our people? And, and these kinds of political decisions, once there are, I think there are no more decisions to make or the decisions aren't readily available and cognizant to us in terms of our ideas, that's when I would say, according to thinking through Badu's philosophy as such, that's when a sequence ends. Now, because a sequence ends doesn't mean it's the end of the all of politics, as we're, you're indicating, right? You can meet a different person after you break up with somebody else, right? There's always a chance. Yeah, the sequence of politics. Somebody ends. new, right? There's even though we've reverted back to a world of global capitalism, there's still discontent and radical class struggle and people just don't want to live in a certain way anymore and people can't live in a certain way anymore. Capitalism cannot give everybody a, a decent standard of living uh, because we want to make people obscenely rich and they want to use their wealth to gain political power over our lives. That's just the situation we live in. So there's always going to be new occurrences where people challenge that. And the question is, do they have an idea of what it means to challenge that in terms of changing the world into something different? Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Like with love events, I find to be the most understandable. Like that in, in that in the In Praise of Love book, I felt like I got a more of an idea as to his theory of event and his truth procedures because so when it comes to politics ending, would it be when essentially there's no fidelity to the event that occurred and there's no longer people are no longer fidelity to figuring out the truths of that event or perhaps, or I guess the one could say the truth is that this procedure has been done. But usually I think politically speaking, the application is that there's no longer fidelity to it. Like for example, in the, his Cultural Revolution essay, the reason why he thinks it's so significant is because Mao, part of the Cultural Revolution's project was sort of to revitalize politics because he felt like essentially the political sequence had pretty much reached a point of stasis when pretty much all that was happening was the party was figuring out how to pretty much just administer policies and development and productive forces. But the whole mission of the emancipation of the masses, the original mission, sort of just pushed to the side, forgotten. And Cultural Revolution wanted to revitalize that, right? That's what I think about is that the, because the faithful subject is one of the three subjects, right? And like fidelity to the event, that's like sort of what, that defines politics, no? Is that fidelity to the original event and fidelity to the prescription, right? like the original mission of the politics. So... These are great points uh, to discuss on. So the idea I want to sort of introduce here is the concept of ethics. And so a lot of times you can see the failure of politics as the failure of there being a subject. And so his book, Ethics and Understanding of Evil, he actually posits three forms of evil. And they're inherently related not to sort of just like malicious mass slaughter murderers, the kind of typical evil that you would think of when you watch like a war movie or something to that effect. But evil, as he sort of suggests, is always related to fidelity in terms of what you're willing to commit yourself to. So evil takes three forms. It takes the idea of a simulacrum, meaning that there's an idea that an event has taken place, but that the event doesn't actually 
address itself universally to everybody. And it's actually a production of terror over a situation. So Israel-Palestine would be like the perfect example of this right now, that the event for Israel is the taking of Lebanon and, and the, the sort of greater Middle East section of the world, and that they have to force everybody out, but that this is sort of their events in the situation. But it's like I said, it's not universally applied to a, a community of people. It's very particular. Uh, it's fascism and it's genocide. But that for them, it, it plays itself out in the simulacrum of an event. The other one would be betrayal, meaning that you just give up. And a lot of people give up on politics and just sort of say, nothing is ever going to change. Better to try to find something good for yourself or just toll the bell in a sense. But that fundamentally, there is no idea of truth that's going to conquer the situation. And then finally, a nameable, just to mention it, is the idea that the power of a truth can sort of uncover everything within a situation. It can name everything. So to use like science as an example, the idea that science will eventually answer every single truth, it can name everything in the situation. All we have to do is do the science. We'll figure out how the brain works, neuroscience, what the soul really is, um, what the beginning and the end of the universe is going to be, that science can address all these questions and that it has the power to sort of name everything. So these three concepts of ethics, again, are just simply related to the idea of a truth and so to answer the question, yeah, I do think there is a point at which subjective failure occurs and people give up, people move on, people become uninterested in, in revolutionary emancipatory politics. And that's sort of where a political sequence can die out. I'm glad you brought the four, sorry, the three subjects again, because I think that is an important way to understand the event. I'll give three examples and I want you to tell me if I'm on the right page because yeah. this is I'm still working through all this stuff newbie when it comes to Beju and probably listeners are also even more so so but the so the three subjects in response to an event there's the react the faithful subject who sees this happened this event happened right and there's something to be studied here a truth to be understood there's something like a fundamental universal truth that this is the, uh, teaching us that there's means to be understood. Then there's the reactive subject who's, there's nothing to see here, folks. Like, oh, this is, or I, we could maybe think of it like actually existing socialism. People who say it was just all a failure that proved that communism didn't, uh, like the, the uh, experience of the fall of the Soviet Union in 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall would be, yeah, it's just proved that it didn't, matter or i guess maybe in love events maybe that's easier to make sense of with a, a reactive subject one could say oh this like this wasn't i was just infatuated or this was just a some kind of basically trying to deny the event status of that event and then the obscure subject is it was fate it was fate it was meant to be this was always meant to be and i guess with the obscure subject politically is sort of like these grand narratives that try to rationalize the events so much to the point where it, an event it pretty much loses the status of an event and just becomes this sort of process. I don't know if I'm on the right track. Because I, I think, like, why, why is this important, though, is because it allows us to have a fidelity to truth, to actually maybe understand the rarity of events and try not to 
get stuck in these habits of thinking that sort of prevent us from like learning lessons and from yeah i guess extracting truths because that's like such a big component of baju being a platonist right so that might surprise some people he's he has a huge commitment to truths and one wouldn't say maybe objective truth but just truth he believes universal truths he believes in universal truths and that already in a sense might raise some eyebrows but i don't know if there's like a better way to explain the there's three the subjects and the relation to truth of the event so yeah we can talk about truth but we can also pose it as what is truth opposed to? Truth is opposed to opinions and sophistry and the idea that there is nothing really unique or novel about situations, that it's just stuff happening and it, there's really nothing to do or say that's going to change the world. Um, and things are just going to fundamentally remain as they are. So why bother? Um, and at the same time, truth is opposed to knowledge, which is this sort of homogenizing of, of a situation according to what we can name and what we can discern within it. So in his later book, Eminence of Truths, which came out in English last year, I think, he's going to pose the question of the infinite versus the finite. So the idea of the infinite is that there is something to be worked out that is actually politically relevant or artistically interesting or scientifically relevant or something about the amorous couple that is touches upon the infinite in a sense that we have something more than just simple finitude, uh, simple identity, simple repetition or evil, the necessity or God kind of thing are gathered the references the finitude he makes. But that it, at the end of the day, the dominant order of things as such chooses to what he, the French term he uses is a recouvrement, uh, but it's covering over that any potential infinity within a political situation that would threaten to destabilize the existing order of things is dangerous, is criminal, will only lead to more problems like, like the Soviet Union, who wants to, to do that again? Uh, so we have to cover over any kind of potential evidence. So the, the classic example would be, for him in this case, would be like the bloody week, which suppressed the Paris Commune. Those people were dangerous. We had to put them down to protect private property because if we didn't protect private property, the world as we know it would end. So this idea of recouvrement, recovering over, plays a large role in eminence of truth. And I just wanted to give it some play because the general idea is that a situation where something infinite is possible gets covered over by what is already sort of present. So one of the big things that I've noticed uh, recently with this is the need to sort of equate Hamas to ISIS. would be a way just to simply reduce them to what we already know about a situation. So we know enough about these people because we know enough about what ISIS was about. They're clearly just the same type of organization. And the only thing to do with these types of organizations is to get rid of them as quick as we can. So we're covering over what is potential about Palestinian liberation, about the possibility that the people of Gaza don't have to live in an open-air prison and aren't subjects to genocide, that the land of Palestine can exist without the state of Israel. These are potential infinites within the situation, uh, which would lead to you know, political upheaval events, if you will, and we would think new truths about what it means to be a human being in that part of the world. So 
the, the notion that we have to cover these over. So in the sense of infinity, though, this is where like I, I don't want to get like too far astray into what's infinite for Baidu because uh, it goes into the mathematics really heavy. Trust me, some of the proofs and infinite truths were not my favorite. And I glossed them and went for the more core arguments and sort of tabled them for later reading. But in the idea of, of an infinite versus a finite, the goal of being infinite is to have a continuous relationship to an event. Uh, meaning that as we were sort of talking about, when does it end? When does it become finite? When does it exhaust itself? When are we just played all our cards and there's nothing more we can actually do to further the cause. Whereas somebody like Mao, the whole purpose of the cultural revolution was to continue politics. Meaning that as we were sort of talking about, the party state itself became revisionist. It decided that what was more important was developing productive forces by going back on the sort of gains of the revolution of getting rid of landlords by collective farming and collective life and the collective organization of production. And so the party wanting to take the capitalist road and embrace sort of small revisions to what it, socialism could be. It's funny, modern day China, it's one sense where you think it's not a bad thing that billionaires are held accountable and ultimately executed, but then you have to ask the question, why is it a good thing that there still are billionaires within the party? So. The point being is that when Mao launches the Cultural Revolution, it is to reinvigorate the mass movement. It is to get people to activate themselves politically to take responsibility and collective decision-making over their lives rather than delegating it to what the party state thinks is the correct policy or how the party is going to represent them um, in that sense. So politics, in a large sense, deals with this issue of works Meaning that, sorry, trying to think of here in the sense of, because the final chapter of Eminence of Truth deals with this issue of politics, the cultural revolution, and a work. The idea of a work being produced is something essential because it, again, it comes down to this idea that the event itself doesn't simply just happen. We're not waiting for an event to happen. It's not a miracle by any stretch of the imagination. It really is a decision that people make. And the consequences of that decision have to be unfolded throughout a situation at various points at which things are going to change. So and they have to decide if an event even took place, right? Because correct. he says that events are uncertain in that they're contestable as to whether they took place. And I think he, he does he not dabble with contradictory possibilities as to whether an event took place in May 68. Because, like, that's he's he thinks it does an event did take place mm -hmm. in May 68, but acknowledges that it's that could that's very contestable, right? I don't know if you want to go into that a bit. Yeah, and I, I tried to explain this a little bit earlier. So, the idea of May 68 was that it created different possibilities within the situation. Like I said, there could be politics involving students and workers for the first time that were different than what, say, the Communist Party at the time really wanted people to engage in. So, yes, the idea of an event, as I was saying, doesn't happen. It's something decided. And what you're really doing is you're staking your own sort of political existence on whether an event took place. 
and what it means for the situation to change revolving around that event. I feel like I'm being very repetitious on this kind of point, but the general idea is I that- mean, It's not an obvious thing. That's why I don't think it hurts, Sure, the, the repetition. Yeah, but again, there's nothing that guarantees an event like we were discussing with the idea of history. History just isn't the unfolding of events. Uh, events are actual breaks within the continuity of history as such. So we can't really just say what we're doing is fulfilling our destiny as working class people. What we are is precariously navigating a new situation and seeing what is new and what has to change in order to be consistent with the idea of equality. It's like making a choice, essentially. It's like a philosophy of agency, more or less. Like rather than history just taking place, it's I mean, that's why he likes Lenin's what what is to be done so much, right? Because Lenin very much clearly identifies the need for in order to make the revolution happen, in order to actually make the working class a class for itself to actually impose its will. Um requires that party. That's why he makes the case in, in that book for the Vanguard party, right? right? And Lenin's whole approach is in many ways different from the vulgar interpretation of Marxism as a sort of process, as we were talking about. With Lenin, it's very much, for lack of a better way of putting it, grabbing history by the balls. Like, really, like, if you took the stages conception of Marxism, like, let's say, Kautsky, uh, you, we would think, Socialist communist revolution is impossible in Russia, right? Because of the productive forces aren't developed enough. But there's an event that takes place being World War One, and you have this overdetermined conditions that Lenin sees a possibility. And Lenin and the Russian masses at the time and the, the Bolshevik party kind of make the choice, make a choice to intervene in history. And um, would that be like a way of looking at Badius? kind of philosophical project like is it not trying to understand politics as this choice as this intervention into history as opposed to something we can rationalize as just part of history something that unfolds or something yeah because i'm trying to in a way illuminate the gravitas of what he's putting forth here because he's on one end he has a he has an interventionist type of thinking and that you're trying to Politics is intervening into history. It's not just part of it. And he also, I think it is that not, it's re related to his conception of truths because he's not a moral relativist. He's not a, well, he's, yeah, he's not a relativist. He's not a deconstructionist. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have this, everything is as good as every other, but he's also at the same time not a scientific, like he's not like Richard Dawkins. Some of the things, everything can be explained by science. Mm he's -hmm. a Platonist. I don't know how are those things related because I don't know if if you have better ways of trying to articulate what I attempted to articulate. No, I, that's a lot of good thoughts, and maybe I'll try to riff on a few of them. So, what I'll try to address here is Badu's relationship to philosophy and history as such. So, Badu is very critical of what we would call the linguistic turn in philosophy, meaning where at a certain point, philosophy takes up questions of language. You could see this in both the analytic tradition and the continental tradition and what we would also call the postmodern tradition. So analytic philosophy. Like Wittgenstein? Yeah, like Wittgenstein. So the question of analytic philosophy, Rudolf Carnap, Russell, Frege, 
all these figures, uh, including Wittgenstein, become obsessed with the idea of creating a grammatically correct language. And that if we just learn how to analyze sentence structures, that we can clear up all the metaphysical nonsense associated with philosophy. We'll just see that the, we can eliminate metaphysics by creating a perfect empirical language in the sense that science becomes totalizing. And this is also a concept that uses in uh, his earlier, uh, I guess the late period, not late period, but a uh, manifesto for philosophy is the idea of sutures. So analytic philosophy is, as such is a suture to the scientific addition of truth. And it sort of expels any type of artistic, political, or amorous concerns in favor of just doing philosophy through science. Continental philosophy, on the other hand, um, which deals more with questions of consciousness, being aesthetics and these kinds of things, is a suture to art. But that it also has its own sort of language vis-a-vis -vis Heidegger. So, for instance, Heidegger's sort of innuendo about language is that we need to clear up and open spaces for where you know things can be experienced and the original experience of being as such goes back to the pre-Socratic philosophers. And so he traces this sort of lineage of Greek into the German, where you know, he does a lot of his own etymology and, and being in time, where the idea of phenomenology is this idea of seeing how things are disclosed and revealed and, and articulated into a truth, or not truth, but language as such, but that being in truth are effectively this sort of same homogenous thing. It's the concealment, it's the appearance of things that were just concealed or covered over by language in a sense. I think Badiou actually gets that covering over from Heidegger a lot, which is sort of a, I'll just make a note, I think Badiou's references to other philosophers that he sort of is antagonistic to is also interesting. But then postmodernism as such is just sort of related to language games, right? So how do we use language within very specific contexts? What words mean is how we use them within a, a particular set of restricted rules. And so philosophy becomes obsessed in these three areas with how do we deal with language? And effectively, truth becomes something that is decommissioned. Like it doesn't have the quite potency that we're, we're, we want out of what Badiou thinks, because like I said, truth is just what is unconcealed for Heidegger and, and the, the nature of being, but it's done through language. Truth for the analytics is just what we can grammatically state through language. And then truth is really relative in postmodernism because it's really just its own sort of language game itself. So what we can only say matters as far as truth is what occurs within certain rules that are very restrictive. So Badu is against all three of these traditions in the sense that he is a Platonist who thinks that ideas do matter more than just these sort of silly squabbles about language or what the current state of the world is. Now we should have really discussions about how ideas can impact reality. So he's been, he's noted himself. He's like said that what it means to be a Platonist to him is a materialism of the idea. So when Plato has discussions about ideas of justice, Badiou is going to take that and think, how does that actually, what does that actually mean for our situations that we find ourselves in. Whereas Plato gets stuck in the realm of ideas as such, Badiou sort of tries to force him back into uh, a more situation-oriented discussion about how ideas are going to matter and impact and change situations.
where I, what I don't quite get is why not Hegel? Why do, why does why is uh, why is why do not embrace Hegel? Because Zizek's whole project is basically trying to show why Hegel is not like this pure idealist, like people think Hegel is a materialist in his own right. But I do know, but you rejects Hegel, and the only thing I seem to understand as to why is that what he believes to be the historicist component. But other than that, I don't quite. Because a lot of what you're saying, like, is in Plato, is in Hegel, but more fleshed out, I think. So, I mean, Hegel appears a lot in Badu's work. He's going to deal with, you know, obviously, you can't deal with the infinity without addressing something like what Hegel refers to as bad infinity versus good infinity, meaning an infinity that just repeats variously in on itself versus an infinity which approaches something new, absolute. Theory of the subject, I think, gives the most rigorous treatment of Hegel and dialectics in terms of not only the questions of idealism, but also Marxism in general. So for Badu, the dialectics he's pursuing is something without negation as a core component, because it for him, there's a positive component of negation, which is subtraction, and then there's a negative, which is destruction. Um, but that for dialectics for Badu, something is always understood as being and being placed which again, it's very convoluted to just sort of freely discuss this in a conversation. You really have to go to theory of the subject and sort of work through it. So yeah, the obvious idea that history is going to come to a resolution and that people are going to understand the idea of freedom. And then we're always working towards that idea of freedom, even through the slaughter bench of history, is something Badu just doesn't accept. He, I was going to say, there's, a point in the new book where he talks about Descartes, Plato, and Hegel, which are his sort of like the, you know, the philosophers he sort of looks to the most, considers his masters, and that each of them proposed something new and dialectical thinking would be one aspect of Hegel, but then at the same time, like the capitulation to constitutional monarchy instead of dealing with politics, something that he faults kind of Hegel for, in the same sense that he faults Descartes for falling back on God as a necessary component of, of subjectivity. Whereas for Plato, Plato was willing to admit various progressive stances for Greek society, but at the same time, didn't really do anything in terms of living in a slaveholding society, which devalued women and considered them secondary property to men, which we lovely inherited for generations at a time. So yeah, the Hegel question is really big to sort of take on. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if we have time for that. Yeah, because we've already been going for quite a while. I really only have, I think there's only time for two last things I do want to ask. Okay. So one is, what is Badu's concept of resurrection and its relation to the event? And the second, which is, it might seem related because of the word resurrection, but it's actually just an entirely separate question, is the why is Badu so fascinated with St. Paul? Because he has a whole book on St. Paul and thinks Saint uses Saint Paul almost as a example to illustrate his own philosophy. Yeah, that, that whole role. Uh yeah, I don't know if we want to tackle resurrection first, because that's like I think probably wouldn't take you as long. Um but yeah, those are the two last things I wanted to talk about out on my list. Okay. So the idea of resurrection is discussed in Logics of Worlds. And for Badu, as I was sort of discussing with situations being the thinkable multiplicity versus in logics worlds, the languages of worlds and appearances. 
that a world in which a truth existed, say his example would be like the Spartacist revolts where slaves decided that they should go back to their homeland instead of being slaves, or the Haitian Revolution overthrowing their colonial masters and, and freeing themselves. And in a certain sense, that world doesn't exist anymore. And obviously, there's the empirical historical re uh, reasons, which is to say that time has moved on and we're now in the year 2023. It's not the 17th century. It's not the 19th century or ancient Greek, but that the ideas are still understandable across time. And that's what he means when he says that truths participate in eternity in that sense. So there is that sort of time temporal component to truths, meaning that they are able to be understood and at the same time, the possibility of resurrecting those ideas in our time to, to suit our needs. So yeah, that's the kind of sense in which resurrection of, of a truth and in a new world from which it was previously over with. Does that help you with so, the resurrection question? Yeah, so this is something I'm fascinated to know. Because I can't help but make the connection to the Sorelian myths. If you, for those who haven't heard of the concept of this Sorelian myth is the idea that a lot of, at least according to this philosophy from George Sorel at the time, who believed that successful political movements required a sort of grand myth behind them about their history, which that they take back in their history that they use to get people to do um the necessary things to essentially bring forth revolutionary political activity, like things that people would normally not do, like sacrifice their lives, require this sort of myth. And he's like, thinks martyrdom is an example, the myth of Christ. And he thinks that, anyway, there some people have drawn the connection to say that the fascists have used this myth to the myth of the nation and the history of the nation. And the, the, for example, the German Volk for German fascism, to go back on. I would, when Bajus talks about looking back at truths of older events that no longer happen, that are old, how do we know if it's like a myth or if it's re resurrection involves a myth or not, or if it's just the fidelity to truth? Because it seems very blurry, in my opinion. Like I could easily imagine res the process of resurrection involving a sort of Sorelian myth. Not that I'm opposed to that. In mm -hmm. every sense, I think that might be prove useful, for, for example, for like looking at certain leftist revolutions or, or stuff like that, having a fidelity to that. Like, for example, in Russia today, if there was a fidelity to the Russian revolution and inevitably sort of maybe a grand narrative that obscured certain things. Yeah, like, are, do you see the kind of connection I'm making and the question I'm trying to get at a little bit? I guess by way of Walter Benjamin, I want to maybe approach it. So the he has this uh, famous essay called The Thesis on the Philosophy of History, in which he sort of suggests that the Jacobins were basically trying to reinstantuate the Roman Republic in the French society under, under the monarchy, and that they just saw themselves as the, the heirs of, of the Roman Empire, and that the Bolsheviks in turn, saw themselves as the sort of heirs of the Jacobins' political legacy um, in terms of deposing a monarchy and creating a republic. And so that kind of does speak to the sense in which Badu is trying to locate political truths that are reconstituted into a new world. 
he uses the art example is obviously the famous cave, the painting of cave horses and very pre-civilization era, there's cave paintings of the, but at the same time, we looking back on this world that is no longer in which that truth was created, uh, we can see the sort of truth of, of what was created as art, meaning it wasn't just simple scribbles. They were trying to represent something and they, they worked through and created a, a portrait on the walls of the cave. And then we can look back and see that as uh, an artistic truth. Keeping in mind that an artistic truth obviously is not the same status as a political truth, a scientific truth, an amorous truth, that it requires different types of subjects. So, but the idea of going back to a political truth as something that we recognize, what, how do we know it in the sense of guaranteed? I'm going to just suggest something wild, which is we don't. It's what we're willing to risk and wager ourselves upon uh, in terms of a political truth and our fidelity to it that guarantees it. So I, again, this is sort of a, a larger concept, and maybe it goes back to something we can pull out of Lacan. There is no big other that guarantees that words mean things or that certain things are symbolically accurate. There's always some sort of lack that we have to account for and overcome. So in the same sense, Wadu has this infamous little line that says, nobody's going to be a philosopher unless you pass to the anti-philosophy of Jacques Lacan first. And so what we really have to get around is this idea that something is going to guarantee a successful outcome for us, rather than viewing the world as a very precarious place in which we have to make decisions uh, that create our politics and what we're willing to risk and associate ourselves with that produce a truth. So there's nothing that guarantees anything for us. We're left to what we're willing to risk and wager ourselves upon. So last question is the role of St. Paul in the Alain Badu's thought. Mm-hmm. And why is he, what does he see, what is his thesis, if you will, on, on St. Paul and his significance in relation to Badu's philosophy? So he wrote the book, St. Paul, which is also subtitled, I believe, Your Foundation of Universalism. So Paul is a thinker of the events, which is the Christ events, which is the resurrection of Christ, uh, which is something that happens, obviously, in, in the, the biblical sense. But the question is, what, what's different in a, the situation now that Christ is resurrected? This sort of miracle that nobody could have predicted. What do we change that's different? And so the idea for Badiou thinking through Paul in this terms of fidelity to the Christ event is that there has to be a certain universal address of the Christ event to everyone. It's, there's the, this is where you get the famous sort of sense of diagonalization of knowledge within a situation where uh, it comes down to this logic of neither nor. So there's neither Jew nor Gentile, but there's something different. And a lot of people like to use this as a meme nowadays where there's neither this or that, it's a secret third thing. And so Badiou, in a certain sense, is the sort of philosophy of what is the secret third thing. And so this overcoming of contradictory identities within a situation which appears to as a neither nor, but something that's new in accordance with the Christ event, which is something that addresses itself universally to everyone. 
the crisis event is, in a sense, for everyone. It doesn't exclude people, but it has to reconstitute how that universalism is addressed to. So in a, one of the criticisms people have sort of maybe leveled against Baidu um, is that in the question of identity politics, how do you create a universalism, which isn't just a replication of all men are created equal? But it's meant to sort of suggest that, yes, all people are men, and because all people are men, they're created equal, and that's meant to be inclusive. But we want a universalism, which is actually inclusive of everybody. So it has to, in a sense, create this new category. As I was going back to with the, the French Revolution, it's citizens. Citizens are the new category, which supersedes the aristocracy, the sans culottes, all the peasant classes, the the actual nobility as such. And so everybody is reduced to this sort of zero level of citizens and everything becomes universal around the idea of the citizen. And so Badiou, in a certain sense, sees that foundation for universalism as it implicates the book out of thinking through Paul's fidelity to the Christ event. So to recap, a he sees Paul's significance as essentially having fidelity to the Christ event, the event of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and also expanding Christianity as we know it to include pretty much to be a universal religion. Like you can be a Jew, you can be whatever background, and you can become a Christian. Mm -hmm. You can become a follower of Christ. And like that is, is sort of the political transformation, if you will, or political creation, some might say, of Christianity as such. Because mm -hmm. that's Related to something that wasn't quite clear, but I, I do have. Does by do view like religious events or, or religious religion as a phenomenon, for example, in its real in its relation to like official religion anyway, as a political event? Mm -hmm. Because I know that's a contestable thing that some view religion as a political event. I personally do view religion and the in politics together. Actually, uh, I don't know if he takes a similar approach. I think he does but i'm not sure if i'm just reading that wrong yeah so i mean maybe something that's more understandable to me is you know, i live in the state of utah the mormon church is very present here but it's declares itself to be the one true church people are constantly bearing their testimonies about how they know jesus christ and all these things are true uh but then it, it radically excludes a lot of people from its practices Certain people can't be baptized because they're homosexual or transgender. And so the, the church itself has sort of tried to struggle with this problem of inclusion. How are we going to be the one true church for everybody for time and all eternity when we don't allow certain people to participate? And so, yeah, there is that kind of sense when the church proclaims truth, but isn't a universal truth. It excludes certain people. Taking it back to the Israel-Palestinian conflict, how is there a state of Israel when it excludes people who are Black Jews from Ethiopia? I thought it was a state for all the Jews, but it, at the same time, it's not a universal state for all Jews. So yeah, that's where that is. And maybe to like sort of tie into that question, well, are there other events other than politics, science, art, and love? In Logics of Worlds, he makes the suggestion that, yeah, there could be. We don't know them, but it, we're not going to foreclose that possibility. Again, being in the spirit of that we can't name everything, that we can't totalize a situation based on just four things. So yeah, are there economic events? Maybe. Are there 
religious events we should be aware of, possibly. Badu's committed himself to the existence of four as such, but without being restrictive. Yeah, I think we covered quite a bit. Uh, yeah, and it was great. It was great having you on. Honestly, uh, if, I, if I had more, if we had more time and energy, we'd do like another episode. But uh, yeah, hopefully for those who have still made it through all of this, I, I applaud you. This is very difficult material. Uh, I find it very fascinating material and plan to work with it uh, significantly more. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, I'm very grateful to have Chris here to come talk about this. Uh, so yeah, it was great. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, if you made it this far and want to have more discussion about it, that's great. I'm at being an event and at Logics of Worlds on the Twitter sphere for as long as that's going to last. So thanks for your your efforts in putting this podcast together. Yeah, go follow him. Go check out Badu and give the pod a five-star rating if you enjoy and get value from these episodes that I do. My only hope is that when enough people become pessimist, then out of despair, somebody maybe does something. But you know why I also like to be a pessimist? Because it's the only way to have a nice life. If you're an optimist, then always bad things happen and you are always uh, disappointed. When you are a pessimist, then you look around, okay, there are bad, but from time to time something nice happens and you are, as a pessimist, you are a little bit glad all the time, no? You are listening to One Dime Radio. Become a patron at patreon.com slash one dime to support the show and get access to extra content.